Our text this afternoon is the first three verses of the letter, the first letter to the Thessalonians. We'll read those again. This is the greeting that Paul gives to the church in Thessalonica, and also then an introduction to his prayer. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, once again that time is quickly approaching when many parents among us will receive from the school a report card for their children. Now, in this report card, they will find an assessment of their child's performance at school. A breakdown, perhaps, for each subject, comments from various teachers, and perhaps even a few remarks on their personal character. Now, for children, this can be a troubling time. Children, you know that when your mom or dad receives this report card, one of two things might happen. If the report is bad, you might receive a warning or a rebuke or a punishment. If the report is good, however, your parents might encourage you to keep up the good work. Now, this is what the letter of the Thessalonians is like. This letter is the inspired, the written response to a report received by Paul concerning the Thessalonian church, a report that he had received from Timothy. Now, Paul had received from Timothy a report concerning the Christian character of the new church in Thessalonica, and the report was good. As he writes in chapter 3, verse 6 of this letter, Timothy has come to us from you, and he has brought us the good news of your faith and your love. Now, certainly throughout this letter, there are some shortcomings that are mentioned, but overall, the report that Paul received about this church, it reflects well on the Thessalonian believers. And so throughout this epistle, Paul encourages them to keep up the good work. As we read in Acts 17, the Thessalonian church was established in the midst of tribulation and through hard work on the part of Paul Silas, also known as Silvanus, and Timothy. And yet notice how this letter begins. Paul doesn't begin by praising the Thessalonians for their progress in the faith. And he doesn't congratulate himself or Timothy or Silas for having successfully planted a church. Rather, Paul begins by expressing gratitude to God. As he writes in verse 2, directly he says, we give thanks to God. And this is our theme this morning. Paul prays to God in thankfulness for the excellent, the God-given virtues evident in the Thessalonian church. With the division in our text, we will see first the practice of Paul's prayer, and then we will consider the focus of Paul's prayer. So first, we will consider the practice of Paul's prayer. Now, brothers and sisters, consider what Paul is doing here at the beginning of our text. In verse 2, 
we, that is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we give thanks always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. This, this is the measure of the care and the love that Paul had for the believers in Thessalonica. Whenever they prayed, whenever Paul prayed, he prayed remembering the Thessalonians. And as they remembered the Thessalonians, they remembered them with thanksgiving and with gratitude to God. But who were these Thessalonians? For Paul, Timothy, and Silas to have such a relationship with them. Now Thessalonica was a city in Macedonia, in the northern part of Greece. And in this city, when Paul had written this letter, there was a newly established Christian church. Only 20 years after the death of Jesus Christ, more than 2,000 kilometers away in a completely different culture and context, already there was a Christian church established in Macedonia. And as we read in Acts 17, the gospel came to Macedonia through the work of the Apostle Paul as he was directed by God. Now, Paul came to Macedonia on his second missionary journey. After Barnabas had left Paul to go to Cyprus, as we can read about in Acts 15, Paul took Silas and went to Lystra, where they were joined by a young disciple named Timothy. Now, for a time, they remained in the region of Syria, just north of Judea, and they traveled among the local cities to preach the gospel. And from Syria, they attempted to go into Asia on two separate occasions. But they were prevented, as we read in Acts 16, verse 6 and 7, they were prevented by the Holy Spirit. So then, while waiting in a city called Troas, Paul received a vision of a man from Macedonia. The man was standing there and urging them, come to Macedonia to help us. The apostles quickly concluded that this was a call from God. So they left for Macedonia as soon as they could. And when they arrived, they began the work immediately in a place called Philippi. And there they encountered opposition, severe opposition. In Philippi, they were beaten, they were imprisoned, and they were asked to leave by the authorities. Only two converts are mentioned in connection with their time in Philippi, the woman named Lydia and the Philippian jailer. After such oppression, it would have been natural for them to have questioned this calling to Macedonia. But instead, as we read in Acts 17, instead they pressed on to Thessalonica. And there they began their work again in earnest. And then after only three weeks, three Sabbath days are mentioned, a number of Jews, but also as it says in Acts 17 verse 4, many of the devout Greeks believed the gospel. Now Paul reflects on all this in this letter to the Thessalonians, especially in chapter 2, where he recounts his time among them. The way that he had come to Macedonia and the way that they had believed the gospel was all evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. As he writes in verse 5 of our chapter, in chapter 1, our gospel, it came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul, Silas, and Timothy They were sent by God to preach the gospel to the Thessalonians. And they were planting seeds in ground that was already prepared, ground prepared by God 
When the people heard the gospel, they simply believed. They believed it, as it says in chapter 2, verse 13, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Now, in Acts 17, the faith of those who believed was strongly contrasted with the reaction of other Thessalonian Jews. One message was preached. One gospel came to Thessalonica. And while some believed, some didn't. The conversion of so many devout Greeks drove many of the Thessalonian Jews to jealousy. So they embarked on an aggressive campaign to hinder the spread of the gospel, dragging their own countrymen before the secular authorities and accusing them of rebellion against Caesar. This was the context in which the Thessalonian believers had received the message of the gospel. And what was this message? What was this message that they had received? What news did Paul bring to, that caused such an uproar in the city? The answer to this question is found in verse 1 of our chapter and also at the end of our text. The church of the Thessalonians was founded on the Lord Jesus Christ. Our reading in Acts clearly explains the contents of Paul's message. In chapter 17, verse 3, it says that Paul reasoned from the Scriptures in the synagogue to prove that it was necessary for the Christ as the Jewish Messiah, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now, in itself, this message is not controversial. This is just the sort of theoretical discussion that many of the Jews were often engaged in. But then Paul, he makes his message very practical. The man Jesus, that man Jesus, he is the Christ. The Christ had already come. The Scriptures, the law, the Psalms, the prophets, they had been fulfilled. Jesus had been born. He had lived among them. He had died and He had risen from the dead. He had, been, he had ascended into heaven. He was the one they were waiting for. And it had all happened in Judea near Jerusalem. And now Paul had come to them to announce that Christ had come for them, even for the Greeks in a place as far off as Thessalonica. Christ had died for them. Now this was how the Christian faith came to the Thessalonians. It came through Paul and the other disciples as they were directed by God step by step out of Judea, out of Syria, around Asia, eventually to arrive in Macedonia. They were even driven out of Philippi to eventually arrive in Thessalonica. Now, through the work of the Spirit, they believed, the Thessalonians believed against all reason, a message that was a stumbling, that was foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. They believed that Jesus, the man Jesus, was the Christ after only three weeks of instruction from Paul. And even as many others rejected the message and persecuted them for it. Now clearly the faith of the Thessalonians was a work of God. God had directed it and He had established it. He had caused it to take root among the believers and He had established it through the work of His servants. His servants, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they were the means of His grace to the Thessalonians. And so they, at the beginning of this letter, they give thanks to God 
for all that He had accomplished through them. They rightfully give the triune God all the glory for the church that had been established in Thessalonica, even as they had established it with their hands. And after delivering the gospel, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they eventually left that city. They left that city to continue working among the Greeks, first in Berea, then in Athens, and then among the Corinthians, as the Lord directed them in their work. But notice again what Paul writes here in verse 2. He assures the Thessalonians of his constant prayers for them, his constant prayers to God on their behalf. He says it twice. He says, always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Now, that sounds a lot like work, doesn't it? Even after they had left, their work for the Thessalonians had not ended. They had simply continued their work in prayer. In a, in a way, we could say, in a way, these men, they had become imitators of the ascended Christ, as we heard on Thursday, who, although Christ is not with us on earth, he continues his work in heaven on our behalf. So, brothers and sisters, consider the practice here of Paul's prayer. He glorifies God for all that had been accomplished through his work, through their work among the Thessalonians. And he prays always, he prays constantly, he intercedes for his fellow believers. Is this our approach to prayer? Like Paul, do we thank God for the success that he gives us in our daily work? Do we acknowledge that our efforts are futile unless they are blessed by God? Do we give all glory to God for the achievements that we enjoy in this life? And do we pray as faithfully and as constantly? We are faithful and we are hardworking in our daily task. We're careful to arrive on time, never missing a day in the office, in the shop, in the field, or on site. We faithfully fulfill our workplace responsibilities, but do we as faithfully and as constantly come before God in prayer? Our Lord and Savior continually intercedes for us before our Father. But do we, according to Paul's example, according to Christ's example, do we remember one another in our prayers? Always, for everyone, constantly mentioning them? It can be easy to forget in our complex modern society, but much of our daily work is simply an expression of service for our neighbor, for our family or our community or for society in general. Our daily work, it is important. But how much more important is it to uphold one another in prayer, in prayer before an almighty and all-loving and infinitely wise Father, the one from whom comes all good things? Our prayers, brothers and sisters, they are a work of service. They are a labor of love expressed for our brothers and sisters in Christ as we remember them constantly before our Heavenly Father in prayer. Now, throughout Acts and the epistles, the image that we have of Paul is like that of a, of a farmer. He works faithfully. He attends to his responsibility, but then he hands over the success of his work to God. 
It's as if he plants a, a seed in a field and then must go away from it for a time, entrusting its growth and its health to God. He knows that the soil in that field is good. He has seen evidence already of, of the plant pushing up through the surface of the soil. He knows that that particular field has good soil, but he also knows that it is prone to many weeds, that many things could hinder the development of this plant. And in his absence, what would, he, what would happen to it? How would it grow? Would it receive enough water? Would it be overrun by the weeds? So here now, Paul eagerly awaits for the report that comes from Timothy, who had been sent back for a time to continue the work in Thessalonica. And Timothy returns to Paul with a report, an evaluation of the Christian character of that church. And the report was good. The Thessalonian church is healthy, even flourishing. And this wonderful news, it brings joy to the, to the disciples. As Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 9, God had blessed their work with a healthy harvest. And more than that, the church continues to grow, to mature, as Paul writes in his second letter to the Thessalonians. There he writes that it is right to always give thanks for you, brothers, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. This growth described in the second letter, it's the fruit of Paul's work described in our text as he continues to uphold this church in prayer. By God's grace, Paul's prayer had produced an abundant yield. Now, every farmer, I'm sure, has certain metrics with which to evaluate the health of his crop. The roots, perhaps, or how strong is the stem. And Paul here is no different. When he receives this report from Timothy about the Thessalonians, he evaluates the health of the church, not according to the number of new believers, not according to their status, the status that they wield in society, but according to the evidence of their faith and their love and their hope. Now, this is our second point, the focus of Paul's prayer. We have seen in the first point how Paul assures the Thessalonians of his constant prayers for them. But Paul also indicates exactly what he remembers in prayer, the content of his prayers. He remembers, as he writes in verse 3, he remembers their work of faith, their labor of love, and the steadfastness of their hope. Notice how Paul begins by saying your work, your work of faith, not simply your faith. Now, the word used here for work, it's associated with activity, with action. The faith of the believers in Thessalonica, it was an active faith. It was something that they were busy with. And it manifested clearly in the life of the church. You know, it's easy to think of faith as an internal phenomenon, a private matter, how to, what we know or how we feel. But Paul has in mind here the kind of faith that lives in the life of a whole community, something that can be seen, something that motivates a whole community to good works. This was the kind of faith that the Thessalonian church had been blessed with, a faith that was, on the one hand, as we saw, a faith that was a work of God, but on the other hand, it was an active faith, a faith that works within the community of believers. 
And this faith, it was evident and it was obvious to Timothy and also to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. As we read in chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. This was the character of their faith. Both from Timothy and from the surrounding believers, Paul had received reports testifying to the sincere and the active faith of the Thessalonians. Now all this, brothers and sisters, it helps us to reflect on the activity of our faith as a church of Jesus Christ. What what if Timothy had been sent to Edmonton? What if he had been sent here instead of Thessalonica? Would he find the same evidence of faith at work? Would he return with the same good news? And how do the believers around Emmanuel report concerning our faith? Is our faith obvious to them? Can they see it? This is the question that comes to mind. Does the evidence of our faith bring praise to God from the lips of those who see it? True faith in Jesus Christ produces a visible difference in the way that we live. Notice how Paul writes in verse 10 that the Thessalonians, they had turned away from idols. They had turned to God from idols. The predominantly Greek believers did not worship God together with their pagan idols, but they had completely rejected idol worship, practices which were at that time integrated into almost every aspect of Greco-Roman life. Likewise for us, because we believe that Jesus is the Christ, we live differently than the world lives. And this difference, it is so profound that it is impossible to hide. And to encourage us in this work of faith, brothers and sisters, it's important to remember that the faith of the Thessalonians, it was not a perfect faith. They had received instruction from Paul, Silas, and Timothy for only three weeks, for a relatively short time. And as the rest of this letter indicates, they still had many questions. For example, later in chapter 4 and 5, we read about their questions concerning the resurrection of the body and about the return of the Lord. And Paul also later prays in chapter 3, verse 10, that he might, Paul prays that he might return to them in order to supply what is lacking in their faith. But even though their faith was lacking in certain ways, it was still working. It was still at work among the believers. And what a wonderful encouragement this is for us. Imperfect faith is not a barrier to faith's activity. You don't need perfect faith in order to begin the work that faith requires. And you don't need perfect faith in order to manifest the fruit of faith. Because faith works through love. As we can read about in Galatians 5, verse 5 through 6. And as we read in verse 3, the next thing that Paul recalls in thanksgiving to God is the love of the the Thessalonians. And again, he mentions specifically here their labor of love. Labor, it's a different word than before. The word labor here, it it refers to work which is burdensome, a work that weighs on us, toil, service, something that takes effort to do that we might not always want to do, that is not easy to do, that leaves us exhausted when doing, loving service. 
This is the kind of word we might use when describing the work of diligently caring for a loved one who is completely dependent on us or a loved one who is sick. Many of you know, might know what that is like, day in and day out, how it feels to do this kind of work. It's tiresome. It's hard work. It's important. It's necessary. It's rewarding, but it's exhausting. Labor. Now, this is the word that Paul uses to describe the love of the Thessalonians. Their love, it's a laboring love. Now, there are two related aspects here. On the one hand, it's a love, it's, it is love that motivates their labor. Love provides the reason to endure difficult or tiresome work. This is the sense of the word that Paul often applies to his own ministry. Because of his love for Christ, he labored to spread the gospel. And on the other hand, the labor itself, the work itself, it builds up and it strengthens the love of the Thessalonian believers for one another. Again, we have an example of this in Paul's relationship with the Thessalonian church. Throughout this letter, he mentions that he loved them as a father or as a mother loves their own children. After much toil and much labor in bringing them the word, he was now invested in this church. He was invested in them. He cared for them, even more now that he had worked so hard among them. See, do you see how these two things, they go together, labor and love? This was the kind of love that the Thessalonians had for one another. A love that imitated the example of Paul and a love that ultimately reflected the love of God. Their love was a reflection of God's love for them. As we read in verse 4, their love was the love of those who were loved by God. Beloved, we love because He first loved us. It was God's love for the elect Thessalonians that motivated the sacrifice of His Son, His only begotten Son. And it was God's love for the Thessalonians that sent Paul to Macedonia and sent the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into their hearts so that they might believe in Jesus Christ. And this love of God revealed to the Thessalonians now, it produced a foundation for their love. This was the sovereign plan of God for the Thessalonians. And what was true for them then is true also for us now. God as our Father, He loves us. He has given us the same Spirit. We are redeemed by the same sacrifice of His Son. And He continues to send us faithful servants to deliver His Word. We are, as Paul writes of the Thessalonians in verse 4, we are loved by God because He has chosen us. We have the same foundation for our love. We have seen the love of God and what He has done for us in Christ. But do others now see our love reflected in our lives? Here we can ask the same question as before. If Timothy had come to Edmonton, what would he report concerning your love for one another? Is our love increasing as we grow in faith? God who gives us all things in Christ has also poured out His love into our hearts through His Holy Spirit. It is impossible for us to receive Christ in faith and not respond in love. So let this love that we have for God, let this love also be reflected in our love for one another.
So faith and love, what is left in this life, but hope. At the end of verse 3, Paul also remembers their steadfast hope, their confident expectation as they waited patiently, looking forward to the future, and so remained unconcerned by the troubles of the present. In fact, the present troubles, the present suffering of the Thessalonians, as we read about them in Acts 17, these sufferings, they ultimately served to produce hope. Their, stre- their hope was strengthened by the sufferings that they experienced at the hands of the Jews. Even as, as we read in Romans 3, Romans 3, verse 3 through, Romans 5, sorry, verses 3 through 5, that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. This is how our hope for the future is shaped, by enduring under our present sufferings. And this was the means that God had used to nurture hope in the new believers of Thessalonica. The tribulations that they had endured at the hands of their neighbors produced a steadfast hope for the future. In this way, as Paul describes in chapter 2 verse 14, the church in Macedonia, they had become imitators of the church in Judea, which had also suffered in the same way at the hands of their neighbors their countrymen. So Paul here, he gives thanks to God for the steadfast hope of the Thessalonians, a hope that was strengthened by sufferings. But what exactly do they hope for? What is the future that they're looking forward to? It is described in the last verse of our chapter, in verse 10, and it's elaborated in chapter 5. The Thessalonian believers, they looked forward to the bodily return of Christ. Their hope, it was founded on the resurrection of the dead and the return of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is in heaven. Their assurance was founded in the knowledge that that Jesus would return in His body from heaven to deliver them not only from their present sufferings, but to deliver them from the wrath of God which is to come. And together with the Thessalonian believers, we share this same hope. We hope for what we do not yet have. So we endure our present sufferings. We rest in the knowledge that, like the believers in Thessalonica, we will be reunited with Christ. We will live with Him forever. Our God, as it says in Romans 15, our God is a God of hope. So may He also fill you all with joy and peace in all believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the focus of Paul's prayer of thankfulness, faith, hope, and love. And And by beginning this letter in this way, Paul encourages the church to reflect on these excellent gifts that God had given them so that more and more they would endeavor to use them. And dear congregation, let us do the same. Our faith, it comes from God through His Word and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Our love, it reflects God's love for us, fully expressed in the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. And our hope is fixed on the person of God Himself, Jesus Christ, and strengthened by the suffering that He sends us in in this life. These three, faith, love, and hope, they are the gifts of God to His church. 
But as we have seen, these are things that we do. These are qualities that we demonstrate. They are visible, things visible in our Christian life. These gifts, they must be used. They must be put on. Just as we are taught in chapter 5, verse 8. In chapter 5, verse 8 of this letter, the Spirit moves Paul from thankfulness expressed in our text to encouragement in action. And there it says, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So, beloved, pray for one another. Invest yourself in the work of the church, the church of Christ to which you belong. Remember and uphold one another in prayer constantly. And even as we always thank God for the evidence that we see of faith, hope, and love in His church here in Canada or abroad, let us also be attentive to the life of faith, love, and hope that lives here in our local congregation in Edmonton. And every day we pray and work and pray, giving thanks to God for what He has given us in Christ. Amen.